Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in to this edition of Let's Be Blunt Today. My guest today is the medical director of the GW Center of Integrative Medicine and also an associate professor of medicine at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. His commitment to the importance of integrating different healing modalities with modern day Western medicine has led him to become a founding board member of the American Board of Integrative Medicine and advisor to a number of integrative and holistic medicine associations and companies. In 2012, he founded the AIM Health Institute, the first 501c3 nonprofit organization in Washington, D.C., metropolitan area that provides integrative medicine services to low-income and terminally ill patients regardless of their ability to pay. He's also the co-author of the recently published book, Medical Marijuana, Dr. Kogan's Evidence-Based Guide to Health Benefits of Cannabis and CBD. Dr. Mikhail Kogan, thank you so much for joining us today on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. My pleasure. I'm so happy to be here. Absolutely. We're so happy to have you. Now, you grew up in Russia, uh, and your family moved to the United States uh, in in route, stopping in Israel. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, just tell me a little bit about your background and, and what made you and got you interested in going into medicine to begin with. And how has cannabis been perceived? And how yeah. is that perceived there? And you know, let's let's start with just you know, a little bit of your background. I, I'll tell you, it's, it's a series of grand mistakes in my life, which, which you know, you, you're sort of questioned when you say mistakes, what does that mean, right? But no, I, I never actually thought of medicine. My parents were engineers. I was very fond of uh, animals, nature. So I was actually convinced I'll be a veterinarian or biologist or something like this. I actually went early on in my career in, to university to study biology and then applied and got into Penn Vet School. But, you know, my life led me, um, you know, there are built-in things in life, right, that lead you to a place where you are. So it turns out I had a bad, back in the day, horrible allergies to animals, which at the end of the day turned out to be due to the mercury toxicity from silver fillings, from amalgams, and also from eating a lot of fish. So I couldn't go to vet school because I had a severe asthma reactions to dogs and cats. It's, it's not really a smart way of doing business if you can't tolerate the, the, the sure. organisms you're working with. Sure. So I kind of searched around and I'm going into medical school. And in the third year of medical school, I stumbled upon a guy in New York, Dr. Ron Hoffman, who kind of diagnosed my problem. And took about 10 years, but all my asthma symptoms went away, all my allergies, all my problems disappeared as I detoxed the mercury. So with that, I kind of found myself automatically going into the field of integrative or holistic medicine, where those are the providers who know how to treat this and standard providers would just give me medications. So that sort of was part of me. I was always interested, though, in things alternative, I think. And and I'm also, I grew up rebellious. I mean, I grew up in Russia, right? So Jewish boy in Russia, you try to survive the antisemite, you try to survive just, you know, and so I, I never was fond of any kind of political structures or so going back to cannabis with that, the cannabis is still assumed to be a deadly addictive drug in Russia. It's a complete no-no policy. If you get arrested, it's, I think the level of uh, persecution is simple, sim- similar to if you own, like if you have heroin or cocaine, they see this as a, something as deadly as heroin. They don't want to consider it. 
And so it's kind of funny that I come out of that environment. And in around 2010, when DC approved medical cannabis, I started getting inundated with questions. And one thing led to another. In 2012, I also met with Donald Abrams. We became close friends. We were founding board members of American Board of Integrative Medicine. And so Donald started to kind of, lead, you know, he didn't specifically teach me, but he helped me to understand the field. He kind of gave me the things to read. And one thing after another, I kind of find myself in D.C. area to be one of the first um, docs who got interested. In, and, and, you know, and then my population is large uh, and a lot of the patients have chronic medical problems where I start immediately realizing, wait a second, if I give them cannabis for insomnia, pain, and nausea, I don't have to give them up anything else. And suddenly I find myself having a lot of patients getting off the medications and this never-ending you know, referral list. And kind of suddenly I felt, wait a second, it, it works. Not only it works, it works so well that it works better than almost everything else I can offer. Well, did you do any research? Now, your, your family left Russia. You went through mm -hmm. Israel before you came to the United States. And yep. Israel had a pretty robust at least scientific investigative program right. since uh, the early 80s uh, in cannabis with uh, Dr. Mishulam, who kind of led the way you based on, you know, using some U.S. funding to do so. Mm -hmm. uh, did you do any research while you were no, in No, this is way before I actually, I was various, I was before 18 when I went to Israel. And so actually I was there alone. My parents were waiting in Russia to, you know, this whole path, pathway of being refugee and coming to States is not so simple. So my parents were in, my mom was in Russia. Um, uh, my dad was in America. I went to Israel. So it was very complicated that way. My brother was also here. And so now back then I wasn't really into, like I was just in an undergrad. I wasn't sure what I'm going to do with my life. So I didn't know anything about this. I didn't know that actually I was in Haifa um, and I spent some time in Tel Aviv. And so I didn't know that the, the the founder of the whole field was right there in my backyard. Right, <laughs> right. Now, were you introduced to cannabis at all while you were in Israel or no? Not at all. No, I, I'll tell you more. I mean, I, it's okay. I, I don't hide this fact. I never tried cannabis until I was in my 20s. I mean, there, it wasn't available. In Russia, it was one of those things. You could have tried to get it, but it was such an illegal activity, and I was a good Jewish boy. No way I would do something like that. So I just didn't want to put my parents at risk or myself. Gotcha. And and with all the things that have happened around the world, is Russia softening its stance on cannabis? Not at all. In some way? Not wow. at all. No. I mean, I think my understanding nowadays, they're trying to do a little bit more of general public education. I've actually published several papers on what's going on in Russia. I have a team that's kind of spread between Israel and Russia. We're looking at the uh, effect of medical cannabis understanding in medical schools. Uh, that's one of my interests is sort of medical education. And, you know, it, it's pretty clear that Russian medical students are quite consistent with their, with the country's political agenda, meaning they think it's highly addictive. They, they don't think it has a lot of benefits. Versus you ask the same question here in America of the same cohort of medical, American medical students, and they're all saying, no, it's not addictive. Yes, it works, and we would like to learn more. Like, that's basically the, the gist of what U.S. undergraduate medical students want. In Russia, they're like, no, we don't, and we're not using it. We, and also, you know, there's also, they're also afraid of probably sharing truthful information because they know they will get prosecuted if they are found who, who said what. 
So sure, and, and, and it, well, that change has just started here in the United States in the last three to five years. I mean, you know, talk a little bit about the fact that, you know, you have helped to give some of your peers more information about the endocannabinoid system and things like that. But but are you starting to see more of that being taught? I know George Washington University has a course now, do they not? On no, we, we don't have a full course. We have a comprehensive program of integrative medicine. So we teach uh, an entire domain of a holistic and integrative medicine. We have we even have a fellowship in that. But we don't actually have a fo- formal course in cannabis. And I think the reason that happened is, um, see, it, for me, cannabis is part of a greater. I don't think that standalone, it's something that I want to spend the rest of my life on. It, partially, it's, it's a fascinating, huge field. But the way I work in a clinical setting, I use it as one of the many tools. And it's sure. very effective at that. So I think our job or our goal at the university is to really try to create much larger awareness of integrative medicine field and cannabis fits very well there. And I do want to try to build some courses, but it's a little different in terms of there's already a, actually, I'll tell you what I'm most interested in. I'm most interested in not just creating yet another cannabis program. I really want to say, look, every university has to have a program. I think that's obvious at this point. And yet the reason it's not happening has nothing to do with the people wanting or not wanting to do it. There is no standard. The standard doesn't exist. The standard has to appear and be universally spread through the universities, and it has to start with an accreditation agency. So American College of um, Medical Education needs to basically say, look, we understand there has to be a set of competencies for every medical student graduating from United States, Canada, and, and affiliated regions to be able to at least have a basic discussion with a patient about the topic, regardless whether they're going to practice in a state where it's going to be medically legal or not, partially because, of course, it's going to be medically legal in every state in the upcoming few years. It's pretty obvious to everybody. But those competencies don't exist. So we just got the... um, Well, those competencies aren't accepted yet, in a sense, when you say they don't exist. Well, nobody developed them. There's been, research, there's been research that's been done now for 30 years. And here in the right. United States, right. we have research that's been done for close to 50 years right. at the University of Mississippi. And it just seems so strange to me. Well, you know, it's, it's, the medical education is different, right? It's not all about is there proof that it works. It's much more complicated than that. It's it, You basically have to understand what is the minimum set of principles and core tools and core set phrases that the graduating physician should be able to deliver to the public, right? So it's it's a little more complicated. And so, you know, you can't just simply say, look, we know it works for pain. Okay, great. But what is exact doses? How are you recommending? What are the side effects? How are you going to, you know, there are so many intricacies and there's so many unanswered questions. Like, for example, for chronic pain, you know, you can read that CBD works and then you can have lots of people who are going to say, no, CBD does nothing for chronic pain pretty much. And it has to be THC and CBD can enhance the THC. But without THC, chronic pain is unlikely to be effective, effectively treated in majority of patients. And then you know, we don't even have a clear cut answer to that question, to be honest with you. Right. right. There's not a lot of randomized trials comparing THC to CBD or THC plus CBD to CBD alone or other combinations. So, I mean, this is all questions going to get answered. But regardless of that, you know, there's so many approved states and patients are asking, 
And they, at the very minimum, patients should have capacity to ask their physician to say, look, can you at least basically guide me here? And most physicians are not able to. You know, in every state, there are doctors who know how to do it and they specialize in this and that's what they do. That's not appropriate. That's grossly insufficient. It needs to be in every part of healthcare system, in every specialty, in every office, pretty much. You have to have somebody who at the very minimum should be able to tell the patient how to get an access how to try it, how to safely try it. Is it going to be okay with the rest of their medications and will there be interactions, et cetera, et cetera. So I think um, we need to educate docs. And well, how do you, in that vein, I mean, how do you think your peers are accepting this, this new, you know, treatment protocol? Are they, are they, interested or are they more on the periphery or are they saying, no, I got to wait for another. I mean, I, I get so, so, tired of hearing, you know, people say, oh, we need to have more research when there's been more research done on cannabis than there has been done on alcohol. There are more published peer-reviewed studies on cannabis than there are on alcohol. Yet, you know, you go to a, 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 a convention for doctors and, you know, the majority of them are standing at the bar waiting to get their next little drink. So it doesn't make sense to me that they don't accept something that has been researched as much as it has been to date Though I get, I do understand that there needs to be more research done. Are your peers starting to open up a little bit? Yeah, I think there's a definitely a shift. Um, I'll tell you a practical <laughs> anecdote. I uh, first gave a med- so we have this grand rounds in internal medicine, which is brings about 300, 350 doctors, tr- students, and residents mm-hmm. at, at our university. And so I, I think the first time I gave the grand uh, grand rounds on the topic was either 2016 or 2017. And when I asked, so who in the out of 300 doctors, who is actually recommending it? So who un- understands anything to tell the patient, I'm going to refer you, I'm going to write the card for you. You're going to go get a card and then uh, we can talk. There's only two hands, mine and one other person who's my boss in geriatrics, who's been Dr. Roth, who's been very supportive from the beginning. When I repeated the grand rounds two years later, we had 12 hands go, go up. Now, it, it's it's a tiny increase in an absolute numbers, but it's a six-fold increase in two years. So I think the things are moving. That's what I'm seeing. But there's a, not just a resistance. There's still a lot of people who believe it's quackery, that, that it's a joke, that it should not be, that it's still dangerous and toxic. And, you know, it's really funny because it often depends on the profession. So in some professions, like oncology is a good example, Uh, There's a lot more acceptance because they know the patients are so sick and they're looking for anything to help themselves and they don't have anything to offer. Like they're just, they don't, the tools are are lousy and and they're just not really effective. Plus, if you want to treat pain, nausea, insomnia, and anxiety all in one, you have to give four pills, right? Instead, you can just give one recommendation of cannabis to cover all of those. So I, I think the people who are in their fields and they're sort of forced to see this as a viable tool, they accept it. Um, I was a little surprised that our own pain center, our own chronic pain clinic was really against it for a very long time until I gave them a lecture in t- around 2019 also. Uh, and because they, they were inundated with questions. And finally, now I get a lot of referrals from them. But it's still... Um, I still would say that we are not anywhere in the next 10 years to get a global acceptance by medical community. I think we're looking at 
10 plus years window. Unless, unless the, the only thing that could change this dramatically and quickly would be the rescheduling or descheduling. Descheduling and making an opportunity and giving more opportunities for research to be done here. Well, not only that, not that's definitely true, but not only that. I think the bigger issue, there's still a lot of docs who feel very uncomfortable to prescribe anything that's schedule one. It's an issue of they just, you know, they understand that they can, they think that they can lose their licenses. They think that if they recommend schedule one control substance, they have to have a schedule one control license, which is definitely not true. So there, there's just a lot of misunderstanding and, and sort of misguided fear. And I think that's what we need to work on to break through while, of course, we also should try to deschedule. I don't even think rescheduling makes sense. I think it should be No, I think it should be descheduled also. But, uh, you know, I, I remember I spent, um, you know, about two hours with Dr. Mashulam in his laboratory in Israel back in 2011. And back then, Israel considered cannabis, a geriatric drug. As a matter of fact, I went to several different houses mm-hmm. or kibbutzes that were literally treating geriatric patients, patients who were in hospice care. They were literally giving them cannabis almost every single day and had amazing results from that. And that's 10 years ago. And mm-hmm. you know, I understand what you're saying about it's going to take 10 years. It's probably going to take another 10 years before Western doctors start to accept the idea that this is something, a viable alternative, something, just another. And, you know, again, we all know that it's not a cure for everyone. It's not going no. to help everyone, but it's another weapon in your, your, in your arsenal, in your quiver. And it's the safest weapon I can give anybody, including a 100-year-old person with 25 medical conditions, only 30 drugs. It's by far, I don't have anything safer. Tylenol is much more dangerous. Motrin is much more dangerous. There's no safer tool than cannabis in for geriatric population. Any drug that I would prescribe to a patient or recommend a drug, not the supplement or herb, the drug, uh, I can pretty much, you can name the drug and I'll tell you, no, it's safer. Like the tunnel, people always, oh, tunnel, nobody is super safe. No, we have 800 deaths from tunnel every year. I haven't seen a single death from cannabis unless you're too high and do something stupid but if you but the for direct substance there's no it's the one of the safest substances we can give anybody stay with us we'll be right back do you want to know how to become a social media influencer how to grow an online business how to make money from your laptop and build a profitable online company well i'm going to show you how in my podcast living the red life I built a million dollar company at the age of 25, a $10 million company at the age of 30, and now I'm the A-list celebrity marketer that speaks around the world on how to transform businesses and make them profitable using Facebook ads, marketing, social media. My name's Rudy Moore, and I'm super pumped to bring you my podcast, Living the Red Life. I know this is going to become your new favorite podcast, and I'm going to show you how to grow a profitable online company step-by-step every single week. Yeah, I don't believe there's been a recorded death from cannabis in the history of cannabis in the world. So uh, I, I agree with you with that. Now, now, aren't you a little taken aback by the fact that, you know, we're looking at a plant and we're looking at only two of the cannabinoids that exist when we know that there's anywhere from like, you know, it depends on who you talk to. Mm-hmm. And, and there's research in Canada that says there's 250 plus cannabinoids. There's research in Israel that says mm-hmm. there's 70 plus cannabinoids. Right. But we do know that there are far greater number of 
viable component parts. And then when you talk about the terpenes and you talk about the, right. you know, flavonoids, there are so many different things that act interactively and, and more synergistically to produce your results. Right. Are you a little taken aback by the fact no. that we have no, an industry? No, no. No? no, not at all. I mean, I, I'm used to the uncertainty of botanicals. I mean, I'm really, <laughs> even though I'm a geriatrician, but what I do mostly is what I call integrative geriatrics. So I, I always recommend herbs, supplements, mm. and mind, body, and lifestyle methods first, if I can, if the issue is allowing me. You know, if somebody has an urgent medical problem, needs medication, that's okay. But most of the conditions that appear slowly, you can, at least in the beginning, treat with much more natural approaches. So I'm very comfortable with, I would say, not just entourage effect, which, of course, your listeners are quite familiar with, but just with a whole uncertainty principle that when you give somebody a whole plant, a botanical extract, you know, the batch is going to be different. Um, you're not going to have the type to, to sort of expected pharmacological consistency from one bottle to the next, you know, the, the, the impacts on the body are slightly different and they depend often on all kinds of things. Like for example, you know, what you ate today or, you know, what else are you taking? So I'm comfortable with that uncertainty. And a part of it is because it works, you know, even there is slight differences, slight shifts, but it tends to work all the time or most of the time. The other thing I'll say, we're definitely not just on THC and CBD. I mean, I prescribe CBG now to 10, 20% of all my patients. It's a very good mood enhancer. It's a very good appetite booster. There's all kinds of other things like CBDA is excellent substitution for Motrin. I almost never recommend NSAIDs. It probably once a month I would give somebody an NSAID because we can't manage it otherwise, mostly because I actually scared of them. They have the list of their side effects and the complications I've seen from NSAIDs ranges from death, well, from liver fa kidney failure to the death from intestinal bleeding. And so I know that if I can give them an equivalent of CBDA, which is a roughly 10 to 1 um, towards CBDA. So if I give 20 milligrams of CD CBDA, it's going to generally produce equal impact to about 200 milligrams of motion. And that's what I, again, do I say that from evidence-based? Not necessarily, but that's what I see in clinical practice. Sure. So, you know, we've definitely passed just THC and CBD. We're grow growing into this other cannabinoids. There's this whole now conversation. Well, is CBN works for sleep? Does it? Is, is it not? Do you have to combine it with THC? Can you take it alone? You know, this field is growing and maturing so fast. It's fascinating to be kind of, in the middle of it, because uh, honestly, there's always something new almost every week. Like, like literally on the weekly basis, we have some news. I'm like, oh, I don't know that. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I like it to the fact that we're, you know, this is almost like the Wright brothers pushing that wooden plane down a hill. We have so much further to go, exactly. um, you know, and, and when you look at, you know, all the CBC, you yeah. look at all the acid forms of the individual cannabinoids and then the variants, and then you put terpenes on top of it. And then you take that and you add that to other botanicals, especially right now, there seems to be a, you know, a move towards, you know, adding cannabinoids to adaptogen botanicals and others. Yeah. People are mixing and matching and, you know, there's, there's rhyme and reason. However, it doesn't seem to be rhyme or reason, but, um, they're getting positive anecdotal effects. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's the field is going to be moved and shaken first by the biohackers, kind of people, you know, people who are going to discover certain things and then try to research them in a more formal way, at least until we can actually start really do much more research. Although I do think that the research is expanding rapidly, even even despite the fact that it's Schedule One controlled substance, we do have some federal research grants, and and you know, I I'm not personally involved in any research projects, although we do have an industry grant and we're trying to start the pain randomized control trial for pain uh, using capsules. But, you know, mm-hmm. it, 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 it's the field where clinicians and researchers have to come together because in reality, um, there's so much to research and there's so, as you said, I mean, to me, it, it's the entire new field of medicine. And I think in the future, we're going to have, well, not even in the future, we already have docs who basically, and I'm not of them, but there are already docs who who basically are uh, uh, um, medical cannabis experts. I mean, what they do is mostly medical cannabis. So they're basically going to be the leading this new established field of medicine, which is cannabinoid or whatever it's the name that it's going to carry, because it's that complex. I mean, it, 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 it almost becoming in the future will become its own specialty one way or another, or somehow it will merge into all specialties, but you will need to have enough experts to guide the general practices on how you, or specialty practices on how you actually do that. Well, especially the fact that, you know, there is, we now know, and we know, but it throws me again. This is what throws me. We've known about the endocannabinoid system for now 30 years, 25 years. It was identified by Dr. Mishulam back in the 80s because when they started figuring out, you know, where the receptors were that were antagonized by plant-based cannabinoids, we started to recognize the fact that we actually create our own, our own endocannabinoid system. So it seemed to me as if, you know, that's where the research should have started and should be really, really, really focused in trying to understand what this other... You're an I are idealists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Right. You know, the reality of medicine, it's a super, it's probably one of the most conservative sciences out there. I mean, you know, and, and think of how threatening the whole field of medical cannabis to the biomedical industrial complex actually is. Right. Unless they, unless they figure out how to integrate it. Well, unless, yeah, unless they figure out how to make some money off of it by synthesizing molecules that don't work as well as the plant-based molecules, right? You know, and I actually, I I was very skeptical and critical. I'm a little bit more open now. I think I see the future of uh, botanical cannabis versus medical uh, or medicinal or or actual drugs out of of cannabis. I don't think that they're going to be able to steal the field. I I don't see how big pharma are going to be able to sort of you know, take away from using, from people using botanicals. I think they're going to somehow co-emerge together. I think they're going to be successful drugs made out of cannabis. We already know some of them for sure. You know, the GW pharmaceuticals, nothing to do with our university, just saying. Right. Um, You know, you've seen how successful some of their drugs being epidiolics and others and such. But, but, you know, I've also now, there's there's a considerable amount of pushback coming right now from a lot of patients about, Epidiolex and the fact that correct, you, know, you it's again some of that is synthesized, not necessarily all plant based, and and it's just and it's not any better. That's the joke. Right. The joke is that they able to charge thirty thousand dollars a year or whatever they're charging 
versus people can obtain a highly concentrated CBD products. And yes, sure, consistency may not be every time 100%, but if it's 90%, it's good enough, you know, but it's going to cost you at least 10 times less. So we have a situation where, yeah, if you're in a, I'll I'll go back to my roots. So if I'm, if I were to still live in Russia or, well, some other, or China, let's say, they would say, why are we doing this? Like, why would we pay somebody when we can produce this 10 times cheaper? But we are living in a society that actually wants to produce more expensive products. Why? Because that's the way the the, the American culture exists. I mean, right. whoever can make more money is thought to be more successful, regardless of whether the product is actually better or not. So, you know, there is a underground movement, I think. I think, I think personally, I don't almost never use large um, cannabis producers, mostly because I think that they're going to have harder time maintaining the quality and high kind of degree of true sense of a holistic product. So I, I tend to work primarily with the, you know, artesian types of smaller companies, mostly because I don't want to, you know, the, the quality, this is where the plant medicine is drastically different from a standard medicinal products, because in plant medicine, the soil you grow your plant on, how it, what it eats, how you water it, what times of the season, what's around it, is the area polluted? All those things matter. And, you know, for the drugs, the raw materials, you never, you often don't even know where the raw materials comes for a lot of medications. I mean, some of them come God knows from where and, and they clean them and they formulate them. And I'm not against it by any stretch, but I'm saying that the botanical world here is just as important to me because in my experience, it tends to work a lot better. And partially it's because, you know, we've evolved with this plant for not even thousands, probably millions of years, right? And, right. and you know, ignoring that is not just stupid, it, it, it's hypocritical. It's basically saying, yeah, sure, I'm going to create the drug that I'm going to play God to think it's better versus I have a right outside in the nature plant that coexisted with me. And, and some, I mean, how it happened, that's not my field of expertise but you know you have to ask yourself this kind of a more existential question how is that that we coexisted with a lot of these plants and they giving us this different effects like look at the world of you mentioned adaptogens it's one of the herbs that i used very heavy in my practice especially for older population there they can be very effective not just for fatigue but for all kinds of things and you know and that's another good example i mean literally for patients often their cultural background will determine what adaptogens i will give them because in my experience if you give somebody like i grew up in russia so radiola and which are common plants in russia work way better than others like you know and 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 this is like way out of it's not really studied but you you start basically going into principles that are so deeply rooted in this kind of a coexistent and holism that I think it will never disappear from medical cannabis. I'm, I'm the only thing I'm concerned about is as we go forward, more and more companies kind of try to make the whole process of everything, growth and extraction, kind of a more commercialized and very uh, industrial. So I, I, I don't know if that will impact a long-term effects negatively. We'll have to see, but. Yeah, that's that's why I've I've been a little surprised that the Russian 
you know, outlook on cannabis when adaptogens are part of, you know, the history of Russia, especially yeah. when you just, you know, yeah, and, and what's that? It's all politics. Yeah, it's all politics. Well, tell me a little bit about your, your new book, Medical Marijuana. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I kind of got tired, I think would be the right word of saying the same thing to everybody. And, um, and then I, uh, Joan, um, and I, my, Smith, right? yeah. So my co-author and I, we, uh, partnered quite a while ago through one of my patients, Susan, and, uh, we were looking for contract. We actually were going to write an aging book since that's my expertise, <clears throat> but uh, the, the publisher wanted the something on cannabis. So we, went that route. And in retrospect, I actually think it was a great idea because I kind of put summary of everything I do with a lot of actual cases. So every chapter has at least one case. Um, and it's basically summarizes how I treat, you know, how I see the particular problem. And then Joan did an amazing job on kind of a putting together a very well, uh, very easy to read book. So I think there's a lot of great books out there, but many of them don't read like a novel. And this book is. So this book is really written that you can kind of start from the beginning or listen from the beginning and to the end. And it's going to be partially entertaining because there's a lot of life stories. There's a lot of um, it's written in a very light, very understandable language. We try to digest the some of the concepts in the cannabinoid systems are very difficult to understand, you know. Even concept of entourage effect, I mean, you and I and your listeners probably know well since they're quite versed into this topic. But for somebody who never heard of it, trying to explain it, it's not so so straightforward. You can get lost in all kinds of scientific terms very quickly. So it took a, it took a big effort. But I think the, prince, the main thing is we don't look for this book as a desktop reference. It's right. really uh, you sh the patient should be able to read it from beginning to an end and then if they need to go back to a certain chapter because they have a particular problem, then that, that they can do that too. Can you, can you just, uh, you don't have to go into super detail, but can you just cover a couple of the different uh, maladies that you uh, represent in the book and, and how you, you came to think that cannabis would react better than maybe some of the other medicines? Well, let me give you things that are sort of not most evidenced. I think that's more interesting because I'm sure. talking about pain and, and say, I don't know, nausea, it's pretty straightforward. So uh, insomnia is one. Um, and there's actually, believe it or not, not a clear cut consensus. The 2017 uh, NAS report, and I actually said it may work or may not. But in my practice, I find it's the by far most effective chronic insomnia tool. And in, in, especially in older patients, insomnia is a very big problem and it increases mortality because people can fall if they don't sleep well and they get up in the middle of the night. So I have seen pretty amazing results. And, and fascinatingly, you don't need a lot of high doses. So that's another thing. A pretty low dose of sublingual or inhaled form of cannabis can be very effective for sleep. And that's that's one. And I usually for for older population, I rarely recommend inhaled products. The part of it is many of them already have lung problems. And so trying to kind of put more high heat product in it, it, it you know, sure, you can get expensive vaporizers that are low temperature and much safer. But, you know, most of the older population, it's also an issue of how you're going to precisely measure it. So I think the sublingual or capsules are generally speaking a little bit easier. 
Um, so yeah, I usually start with just a couple of milligrams of THC and sometimes THC with CBD or CBN and slide titrate very slowly at night until it works. And it works so often that, you know, I used to try other methods first. Quite often now, especially if somebody's on a limited budget, I would not send them for cognitive behavioral therapy because in our area, nobody takes insurance. So they'll be out thousands of dollars for 10 sessions of CBT versus they'll be out a few hundred of dollars after six months of cannabis at low doses and it's going to work for them. So um, that's the one, one issue. Um, and you mentioned palliative care. I, I want to speak to that because to me, that's very... I do a lot of it, um, and um, I see a tremendous potential for cannabis. The reason is, you know, we I mentioned earlier that cannabis can parallel in parallel treat multiple issues or multiple symptoms. Unfortunately, when people are close to the end, um, it's extremely rare that person will have one symptom. You know, especially if you're talking about a cancer ca cases where patients would have sleep, nausea, pain, um, you know, they may have just a general feeling really unwell, like very down and depressed. And here you have a substance that can literally treat everything and just be one substance with basically very minimal level of side effects. Um, I work a lot with hospices and they know, they actually refer me patients all the time, those who are interested in this. And Effects are profound. I have a case um, documented in, or written in the book of the patient who actually lived a lot longer than expected. The patient lived more than six months extra just because we were able to control the symptoms because patient felt a lot better and just wanted to be around, you know. And, and yeah, sure, we didn't necessarily treat the underlying metastatic breast cancer, but that level of getting people a little better so they can have a lot more quality of time spent with their families. I don't have any better tools, to be honest with you. I mean, I can give them opioids, something for nausea, something for sleep, you know, and then opioids going to cause constipation. So it's going to increase amount of abdominal symptoms. So I'm going to have to give something for that. The next thing you know, I have four or five drug cocktail and it's guaranteed side effects, 100%, not 90, 100, because everybody can have something. And so, you know, here it comes the cannabis where I can give one substance, explain how it's going to work, work closely with the hospice to figure out. And so one thing that I want to bring up, sort of close this particular part, I wish the hospices will be a little faster on accepting the cannabis. But the problem is their budget comes from CMS, for Center for Medicare Services. And so you know, they're very limited. They can't fully embrace it because they get paid by the government. And of right. course, Medicare cannot authorize any of this. So, you know, that's why to me, not even rescheduling, but descheduling is so important because we have to move this field into the area where all these infrastructures that are ready to a full implementation can say, finally, you know, and, and who knows how long it's going to happen. And that's going to take a long time because, again, you just hit it earlier where it's going to cost maybe a couple hundred dollars over the course of a couple of months versus thousands of dollars over the course of a couple of months. And there's a lot of people who don't want to lose their little piece of, you know, the financial pie. You go to the butcher, you're not going to buy a salad. It's my favorite right. expression. Yeah, it's just right. that's our system is set up. Unfortunately, patients are not on the first line of interest. They are a product of financial interest. And 
you know, we have to keep living and operating in this environment. And I think I, I'm supportive of a lot of physicians and a lot of people who actually say, look, forget all this. I'm going to just make money here and become an expert and sell my own product. I think it's bound to happen and it's okay. Even though personally, I think it's, it's a problem in the long run, but it has to happen because otherwise we're not going to get to the level of systemic expertise that is needed to move the country forward. Absolutely. Well, um, you know, it, it, what would you, what are some of your tips to, for, for some people out there who are listening and they want to decipher what products may be better for them or not better for them? What, what are some of the tips that you would give them? Or do you put those tips in your book? Of how uh, a little bit. Yeah. That's a kind of next level question, I would say, because you talk about the experienced people. I think the book is mostly written for somebody who's, who's never really considered this or mm-hmm. they considered it, but they didn't kind of, they couldn't cross it in, you know? Um, mm-hmm. I think most of the experienced users will find the book too basic because they already kind of went through this. The thing that I tell to everybody, A, don't, don't be afraid of experimenting. Cannabis is one of few substances where in the worst case scenario, you'll get a little overdosed and it'll pass, right? right. So don't there, there's no necessarily a fear of it um, because you're not going to kill anybody or you're not going to cause any serious side effects. You just may go to sleep, right? Yeah, yeah I mean, you, you know, if you're using it wisely, you're not constantly going after the high addiction level in medical world doesn't exist. We actually had a funny um, continuous struggle so Joan is a medical sociologist. So she kind of worked her way through um, the, the, you know, she's a little older. And so she worked through the area of where everybody believed that cannabis is highly addictive drug. And she actually worked in the field. And she's like, I don't see any addiction. There is no addiction. Like, what is going on? And so she was pushing ours to kind of say there is no, it's not an addictive substance, of course. As a physician, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm not putting my head on that statement. That'll, that'll destroy my, you know, that won't, won't go well with my colleagues. But, you know, the reality is medical cannabis is not very addictive substance. You know, even if you use it chronically, say, for insomnia and then you withdraw, yeah, there is some withdrawal. I'm not saying no. But it has nothing in comparison to, say, benzodiazepines, where I have to withdraw people for years off of that drug if in a certain situation. So, you know, I, I think I think don't be afraid to experimenting. Um, and I think also don't be afraid of experimenting with the preparations that are um, the routes of administrations that are unusual. That I'm a very big on topical and rectal. I, 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 there are a lot of people who don't believe in rectal because there's no absorption. I'm not going to argue. In my practice, it's by far the most effective treatment tool for chronic back pain um, because I often have older adults who are in so much pain that if I give them an oral product, they'll get, they won't be able to function for the level of control of pain that needs to be, they'll be too high. And so here comes rectal where I have some 90, 100, 100 plus year olds, totally pain-free with two suppositories a day. So mm-hmm. I think being able to experiment with that. Um, and, and, and actually, I think the, the other thing is being able not only experiment with what's out there in the market, because unfortunately, market is the market. And every state is different. And every state is different. So I think people who can help patients with do-it-yourself. And so, for example, I have a whole complex protocol for suppositories. And I love working with the kind of coaches who are very experienced because those are the people who actually understand 
how to take the principle, how to take an idea. I say, okay, well, let's titrate to this. But how do you actually physically do this, right? If you don't have a particular product in dispensary, now what, right? So I think that's where I love working with people like that because they really, um, well, they're first of all, they practically understand the the, the cannabis and what, what, what are the products out there and how do you use them. And second, they probably have the most experience than majority of physicians and patients. So, so, but, you know, this field is also maturing, right? So they're probably very large degree of variability between different people out there. And some of them are, you know, jumping the wagon early and trying to say, I'm going to make money and not necessarily fully understanding the product. So it takes, it's not a simple field and it's rapidly changing and it has a lot of shortcuts, which unfortunately um, a problem like the CBD shortcut, right? Because the hemp industry can bypass the schedule one, but in reality, the efficacy of CBD for all kinds of conditions is very highly in question. And beyond kind of anxiety and some types of insomnia, I don't necessarily think that just alone it's going to do miracle for anybody. But yet the public thinks that it is. And you walk to Walgreens or whatever, and it's all over the place. So, Right. Well, you know, the book is called Medical Marijuana, Dr. Kogan's Evidence-Based Guide to the Health Benefits of Cannabis and CBD. Where can they go to get it, sir? Everywhere. Amazon. Um, you know, wherever you buy your book, Barnes and Nobles, it's uh it's a penguin random house. Um, so it's in every, you know, Hudson booksellers, bookshop.org, books a million, target, Walmart, inbound, wherever. Yeah, your publisher is Penguin Books, and that's a publisher that I use for a couple of my books. So congratulations on that. Thank and um now um if people want to reach out to you and just get some information, where would they go? I think they can go to our, our main clinic website, uh, www.gwcim.com, gwcim.com. It's really hard to get hold of me through university, I'll tell you that. So if you, they call the main number, um, I don't know. It, it, right. You know how it is. It's a large institution. Yeah, our, I mean, we try to update our website. It's a clinic website. I have my own website, mishakoganmd.com, but it's not very, you know, I'm not a media person or... Gotcha. You're not going to, you can find me on the Facebook and Instagram, but it's more for, I, I actually, on Instagram, I try to put a weekly videos. They're mm -hmm. not just cannabis. They're more of a general integrative medicine. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, you know, I, you know, I will tell you that you always have a home here. If ever you want to come back and talk a little bit more, we'd love to have you. Um, I think uh, our viewers are going to find this conversation extremely interesting and going to appreciate a lot of what you've shared uh, in just an hour, but you know, we could talk for two to three hours and barely scratch the surface. So I'd love to have exactly. you back. Okay. Yeah. Well, have me back. Um, uh, you know, maybe, uh, maybe we can pick a more specific topic. Uh, there are sure. some topics I'm very passionate about, the, um, you know, the palliative topic and also yeah. Alzheimer's and neurodegenerative process. I would love to talk to someone over the period of next years because I, I have a strong belief that cannabis will play a role in the curative treatments of Alzheimer's disease. We already have a, we already have a program. We are collaborating or working um, uh, with Dale Bredesen. So there is a program on, on what's called Recode, or, or um, it's basically um, reversing cognitive decline program, and it seems to be effective. And we will be keep adding pieces to that program as we go. And I see that the cannabis there is going to be huge potential. I already have heard and seen um, 
researchers and other people seeing. And, and we know that in, in advanced Alzheimer's, the symptoms of Alzheimer's, you know, the delirium and agitation and insomnia, very well treated by cannabis. But I'm talking particularly, will the cannabis one day take a role as an anti-Alzheimer's drug? And I, my personal belief that it will, uh, what am I basing on that? Some anecdote cases that I've seen in my own practice, but it, there's no research to sort of say what I say it now, just like with cancer, right? Everybody's seen the cases and everybody think that also that cannabis will be a part of the cancer treatment armamentarium. And yet the, the sort of the clinical evidence for that is very limited, right. but you know, I, I'm, I, I have a faith. It's a fascinating product and I think it's going to take its own appropriate place for treatment of all kinds of chronic medical conditions. I think I agree with you 100%. I have a family member who right now is in, you know, hospice care who I just, I, you know, I didn't argue with the doc, with the nurses and doctors, but I just said, you know, I mean, if there was some way for them to help make that this person's time on the planet better by giving them some cannabis, why not? I mean, they're in a pl- spot right now where they're not going to reverse. They're not coming back. So, you know, at least let their life be better while they're here. Yeah. And I do that all the time. And interestingly, in my area, nursing homes I work with, they kind of aware of that. Um, right. And they know that they can't formally give, but you'd be surprised what administrators are capable of doing. Absolutely. So I'm not going to say more just because, you sure. know, it's no. still a controlled substance. But I have seen things that you know, I basically get the toughest cases in town referred to me where I try to figure out how will you do this, you know, and and often the the practicality of administering is not, not a big deal. It's a practicality of how do you do this in a controlled settings if it's a long-term care, if it's a nursing home, they're legally not allowed to administer. But things are changing. Things are changing. Right. The, I see that the not only political climate is changing, but I see that as more and more people simply understand the value, they starting to get around the system slowly. So it's just a matter of kind of critical mass to hit and things will just mudslide down quickly. But we, I don't think we're quite there yet. I think we're some years ahead of that. Well, the book is called Medical Marijuana, Dr. Kogan's Evidence-Based Guide to the Benefits of Cannabis and CBD. And again, you have a home here. Anytime you want to come back, sir, we'd love to have you. And we can talk about any individual topic or a mix of topics with that you want to discuss. And I know our viewers are going to love to have an opportunity to hear more from you. Um, I, I, we're out of time, so make sure you tune in to the next Let's Be Blunt with Montal. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montal. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments. Are you dealing with best life burnout, constantly striving for more, and quite frankly, over it? Maybe you just want more joy, peace, and laughter in your life now. Well, then let's go. Welcome to your new favorite podcast, Hot Happy Mess, hosted by me, your girl, Zuri Hall. We are celebrating our magic in the middle of life's messes. Don't miss new episodes every Wednesday. Listen to the Hot Happy Mess podcast on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin. 
And I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday. 